Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specify, the Building Materials Innovation Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to help the entrepreneurs and the innovators who are making a positive difference in the building materials, coatings, and construction industry. Each episode, we'll tap leaders and experts from inside and outside the industry to provide the mental tools, skills, and insights to make an impact. Today's guest is Mark Lipton, who's the owner of Tremont Paint Supply and is a consultant, blogger, and podcaster in the independent paint retailer channel. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Tad, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the time. Tell us more about your background, Mark. So I actually got into the paint business very naturally. My great-grandparents, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather started a retail paint store in New York City in 1907. And that store and one other, we have two, are still in operation today and still the primary focus of my career. Tremont Paint has been owned by my family for 112 years. And We continue to be a significant supplier in New York metropolitan area of architectural coatings. I also do a fair amount of consulting. I'm a NACE Level 3 certified coatings inspector, so I I use that when I can from time to time. And I I spend a fair amount of time on my blogging and podcasting. And almost all of that is geared towards the independent dealer channel, whether that would be the dealers themselves or also the manufacturers and the employees of the manufacturers that sell into that channel. And I've been doing that for about a year or so. Okay, sounds good. Well, you have a lot of experience running these retail locations. Now, can you describe what a well-run paint retailer looks like? Sure. So it looks like, hopefully, a pleasant shopping environment where you can come in and get anything you need to accomplish a paint job, whether you are a high-end consumer looking for super premium products all the way down to apartment house maintenance and other types of of users of coatings, we supply the whole gamut. And so we would have uh, probably four different manufacturers that we deal with. We're a big supplier of Bedroom Moore, which is very big in the New York metropolitan area. We deal with Rust-Oleum for some of the industrial products we need. We deal with Pratt & Lambert, which is a Sherwin-Williams company, also for some architectural coatings. And even within that, we'll carry a very wide range of products from all of these manufacturers because we do have an enormous range of, of customers coming in. We have people coming in and buying the Benjamin Moore Aura, which is $75 a gallon. And we have people coming in and you know buying 300 gallons of some flat white for a spray job that they're looking to pay $8, $9 a gallon for. So we cover the whole gamut and as well as all the equipment and sundries that you would need to, to go with that. So we sell spray equipment, we service spray equipment, brushes and rollers and basically all the prep products. So just imagine if you were to take like basically the the paint department at a Home Depot or a Lowe's, that's what I have yeah. only without all the other things, just just the paint department. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of different manufacturers. How, how do those relationships look like with your store? So Benjamin Moore is our oldest relationship. We're actually one of their oldest customers in the United States. My family has been doing this 112 years uh, straight, single, just one family ownership. So that's probably our oldest and our strongest relationship. We depend on them for a wide range of products. And then the other, the other manufacturers that we deal with, 
Some of them we deal with, like for example, Rustoleum, we deal with them because they fit a specific niche. We need industrial products. Benjamin Moore, which as I said before, we're very big with, doesn't do, in my opinion, an outstanding job with industrial products. And I have a little bit of a market for that. So we use Rustoleum for that. The Pratt and Lambert relationship is a good one for us. It it kind of fills in a lot of gaps. They have a few different lines that we can tap into and it fills in a lot of gaps for us. And so we just, I like to maintain multiple relationships with paint vendors. I think it makes me more flexible. And, and that's why I have the ones that I'm dealing with now. Makes sense. Now, I mean, how, how involved are they with your operation? I mean, do they come in, do demos and, and sort of filter people towards you? Or how, how involved in that is that? So they, most of these manufacturers will do what you ask them to do. I don't find any of them do an outstanding job of pushing in and giving services. I don't often have somebody come in and tell me something and have me change my thinking on a topic, but they do respond very well. And so there are services that you need that they will, that they will help you with. They do a nice job. Benjamin Morris does a particularly nice job with helping you keep your store well merchandised and organized. They have upgrade programs and they'll actually offset some of your costs on some of that. They'll, they'll kick in money to help you keep your stores looking the way you know you would want them to look. And also in this case, the way Benjamin Moore would want a Benjamin Moore store to look. And so they help with stuff like that. They do uh, sales rep training. They do employee training. Some of them, both Benjamin Moore and Pratt Lambert have, over the time that I've been with them, had different subsidies in place to help me grow my business. Both of them have offered us help with paying for an outside sales rep to go out and try to grow our business. And of course, they both have reps in our area geographically that, that try to do that on an everyday basis. So they, they do a decent job of getting support if you ask for it. Nice. I mean, we're, we're in the industrial side. And one of the things that we don't deal with as much is, is sort of color management. But I know on the, yeah. the uh, retail side, that's, that's a big aspect. And you put a video up that was kind of interesting, sort of highlighting some of that processes. Can you go into what that looks like? Because obviously you can't stock every color. Right. And so we have some good equipment, which is what you need to be able to accomplish this is, is good equipment and good people if you're going to make your color savvy customers satisfied. We have a, a good portion of our business where color is frankly not that big a deal, right? The apartment house people, the, some of the schools and hospitals, they don't really care all that much. But to the private consumers, and, and we do have some designers and decorators that buy from us, they can be very sensitive to color. And so we have machines that are extremely accurate in dispensing colorant so that we know what we give you is the color that you're looking for. We also keep all the most up-to-date equipment as far as color matching is concerned. And believe it or not, we, we actually have somebody on staff whose responsibility is, is color matching. We, we had a match that came in. This was just uh, two or three days ago. We had a match that came in and, and the equipment just, the color computers just weren't accurate enough to oh. satisfy this customer. And yeah, so we, we have a color man whose job it is to, to satisfy the customer who's not otherwise satisfied. And we take hours and we hand, we hand blend the colorants until we get to the color that exactly, exactly the color that you're looking for. Oh, wow. So, okay. So yeah. this machine is like working away and then it spits something out and the client looks at it and says, no, that's not it. So what, yeah. you have to hand blend it and do batches and, and dry them out and then 
That's correct, actually, Tats. That's exactly how we do it. So good, good call. So we actually have draw what's called drawdown bars, which I don't I don't know if you're familiar with them. They just no. run a, a uniform amount of paint across a piece of cardboard. So I can give a perfect three mils of wet paint on a, evenly across a piece of cardboard. I put it in a dryer. It dries in 10 minutes. And now I've got a really great sample and I just put it next to the color that the customer is looking for, the target. And I can look at that and this color guy can look at that and, and visually see, oh, well, this needs a little more red or this needs a little more green. And so we actually do that in very small incrementation, a little bit at a time, because once you put it in, you can't take it out. Uh-huh. And we will redo those anywhere from one, if you get lucky, to 15 times if you don't. Oh, and you wow. just keep working at it until we get it. And invariably, we'll get it. Yeah. Now, is there like a threshold in which you do this for someone? Like, for instance, obviously, if they're just getting one can, it's, it's maybe might not make sense. Is there kind of a minimum threshold that you look for? Or do you just do it for anyone? Right. We'll really do it for anyone. And I agree with what you're saying. And sometimes you do it for somebody who is particularly demanding and it takes you two or three hours. And when they're all said and done, they buy a quart or a gallon. And that can happen. But in the end, it's a service that we provide to all of our customers. And so if you need it, then we're going to give it to you. And, and sometimes you sell them a quart and sometimes you sell them a pallet. And we don't always know that before we make the color. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, this machine, that the one that works most of the time, is that expensive? I mean, I think I saw the thing. It was kind of spitting out stuff. What is that? Yeah, so there's a few, yeah, there's a few different machines that we have. The machine that you're talking about that I put up on LinkedIn is, yeah. is actually a colorant dispenser. Okay. So you would open up a can of paint. Those cans are made in tinting bases, which have varying strengths, which are all measured varying strengths. And then there's a formula that's designed by whoever is the manufacturer, Benjamin Moore or Pratt Lambert or any of the other names that we just mentioned. There's a formula that's in the computer. You hit the numbers and boom, it just spits it out down at the bottom. And, And there's really not a lot that can go wrong in a case like that. If you're doing color matching, that's different than just making a color where a formula already exists. Then we have a couple of different tools. Obviously, I mentioned before the human eye, which is the fallback tool. It's probably the most accurate. It's probably the best at doing the job, but of course, it's very slow. And so the first thing we have is we have little handheld devices. They cost, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks each maybe. Mm -hmm. And you can drop it on a color sample. And it'll tell you what is the closest color in your sort of universe. A lot of times we show that to the customer and that's good enough. The customer is not looking for 100%. They're looking for 95%. And so that's good enough. If you want a little closer, then there's actually a color matching computer. Those are a little more expensive, probably around, I guess, around six or seven grand. And they will actually read your unique color and give you a formula to make that unique color. So those are the those are the tools that we use the two computer driven tools the inexpensive one and the big color computer and a you know human interaction. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Now, if you had a magic wand and you can change anything about your industry, what would you do? Wow. <laughs> I mean, we, am I going to run out? You should have put or? that one in your prep notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have run that one through your prep notes. One of the big concerns that I have for my industry as a whole is the independent retailer channel is getting old very quickly. 
And guys like me, it wasn't that long ago that I was sort of the young gun of the industry. I'm 55 now and I'm closer to the door than I, to the exit than I am to the entrance. And it's not a business for reasons I don't necessarily understand because it's a good business, but it's not a business for some reason that young people are coming into. And I think that that puts a lot of strain on the manufacturers uh, that are hoping, you know, obviously to be around for another 20, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. on how to solve that problem. So if I had a magic wand, I would try to figure out a way to have people recognize what this industry offers. Because I just look at my family as an example. Mm-hmm. You could look at the paint industry and sort of roll your eyes and think, all right, well, you know, he's not a lawyer. He's not a doctor. He's just a paint salesman. That's true. Maybe it's not as impressive and that keeps people away. But these two stores have supported my family for four generations, 112 years. We've all eaten. We've all driven cars. We've all taken vacations. We've all been sent to college all by the profits on the paint that we've sold. And so it has tremendous value. I I wish younger people saw that and were coming into the business more. It'd make it a little bit more exciting. Now, how does the Amazon and those online retails affect what you guys do? So the good news for us is that paint is is not easy to make Amazon friendly. Hmm. A typical can of paint costs somewhere in the, let's say, $40 range, maybe a little bit more for like a premium quality can of paint. And it probably costs 12 to $15 to ship by UPS. So that, or, you know, postal service. So that is a problem, right? When you buy something from Amazon, that's a hundred dollars and they pay three, four, 10 bucks to ship it. They can sort of handle that. That's eight, 10%, whatever, 3%. But in the case of paint, the shipping costs would be 25% (laughs) of the total transaction. And so that helps independent paint retailers keep the Amazon keep Amazon from coming to get too much of their business. Another thing that helps is that paint is really a, a very touchy, feely sort of product. When you come into my store, you look at the colored chips, you see them, you feel them. They're made from the actual paint, which is a, a huge improvement over what anything that Amazon could do, which would be just to display it obviously on your screen. And there's no assurance of of accuracy of that. Every screen is different, just like every phone is different and every television is different. So how they how two different screens show the same color will vary, and that obviously affects the customer experience. So it wouldn't be so easy to put a paint store up on Amazon.com. There are some companies that have tried it. Generally speaking, it has not been successful. Interesting. Now, obviously, been in business for a, a while. Now, what sort of adversity have you faced? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> this one we might use the rest of our time. <laughs> you know, when you, when you own a small business, Tats, there are always up and downs, right? And I've had years where I've, had, where I've been very successful. When the economy collapsed in 2008 or 9, whenever that was, 2007, yep. Yep. when the economy collapsed, my business fell probably 50% in about six months. Mm-hmm. We had jobs going on where we were four stories into painting a 10-story building and, and the Ooh. jobs just came to an end. We had 13 employees at the time. And within six months of that October crash, we were down to half of that. And right at that same time, I was going through a divorce. And so I was basically trying to figure out how to run these businesses 
that were in a free fall in a spiral and had to do that with absolutely no money at all because I was in the middle of getting divorced. So that was a really, really challenging time for me. Lost a lot of sleep. Had to really change the way I go to market with my stores. Had to really change the way I think of myself as a paint dealer and what I was looking to accomplish as a paint dealer. But a couple of years of hard work and I came out on the other side and, and now we're doing quite well again. Oh, wow. So th- that must have been a big turning point. What, what were the learnings you talked about? You had to change how you thought about it. What, what were you thinking before and how specifically did your thinking or your approach change after? Yeah. So one of the things I remember thinking back then, my younger days, I wanted to make every single sale. And so there was nothing that I wouldn't do to get any customer, no matter what the circumstances. And as the economy started to collapse and my resources started to be drained and pulled in so many directions that I had to find a way to focus them, one of the things that I realized was that not every sale is a good sale. And we actually spent a lot of time. We probably, I said earlier that we lost probably 50% of our business in six or whatever it was, nine months. Some of that was because of the economy. Probably half of that was just because the economy was in free fall. And the other half of that was actually me cutting those customers, just firing customers and basically saying, listen, I've, I've done an analysis and you're, you're no longer good for my business. You need too much service. You take too long to pay. You are too low of a profit margin. And so those are, those are some of the things that we looked at. And at the time, we were a very professional-centric business, meaning probably 85% of my total gallons, maybe, maybe even a little bit more, was going to some sort of professional or what, what you might call like a B2B user. And now that number is probably closer to 50 or 60%. And those differences between those two numbers are the people that we had because I came to the realization that that they just weren't profitable enough for us. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Oh yeah, definitely. It takes something sometimes to to grow and and learn from that. Now you're running a business. You're obviously very busy. What sort of top habits or routines that help you sort of stay on top of all that? That's a great question. Probably you'd have to look at it sort of like day-to-day habits and then sort of bigger picture sure. types of habits. From, from a day-to-day perspective, one habit that I have is I write everything down. And maybe that is partially occupational hazard. I, I do see myself as a writer, even the blogging, which I'm doing now is fairly uh, new for me, but I've written for the trade magazines for 30 years. So every idea that I have, whether it's a little one, like, hey, I want to move some particular stack of paint from one spot to another because I think I might merchandise the store a little bit better, mm-hmm. all the way up to an idea for a new blog or an idea for a podcast or even an idea of opening up a third store. Everything, when I think it, I write it down. And whatever thoughts are in my head at the time, I write those down with it. And it at least makes it possible for me to not forget so much, right? So many things that we think of as good ideas, but we get very busy and your kids call you and your wife calls you. And the next thing you know, that idea is gone. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it doesn't come back and you don't even remember necessarily that you had it. Yeah. And so I try not to lose my good ideas by writing them down. On the big picture, I have a tendency to, to trust myself a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I put a lot of time and effort into my decisions. 
And then once I make them, generally speaking, I stick with it. And unless something, so if something in the future has changed significantly, or I've learned something that perhaps did not exist when I made the original decision, of course, I will change my mind or change my direction. But for the most part, unless something significantly were to change, I have a tendency to say, listen, when I made this decision six months ago, it was the right decision. So you're still going to like it now and you're going to stay on that path. And I think that keeps me true to my goals. And then probably the third one, one of the things that I really like to do, I'm not a fan of, of making decisions, particularly in close. One of the things that my father taught me when he taught me how to drive, don't look at the road right in front of the, the hood. Look at the road all the way down because that's where the action is that you're going to want to avoid right? If there's a problem. And I feel the same way about decision-making, even though obviously it's not life-threatening like driving a car. I feel the same way about decision-making in my business. I want to keep my decisions as far away from me as I can so that I get as much perspective on them as I can. And I don't have to make people that let decisions come too close to them, they end up having to make very emotional or very quick decisions. And I'm not a fan of that. Very good. Now, you mentioned about writing and blogging and I guess podcasting earlier. What got you into that? I had always been a writer. I was a writer when I was in college. I was a writer when I was a kid. And for the first, I would say, 28 or so years of my career, maybe 29 years of my career in the paint business, I was also a writer in the trade magazine. And then the trade magazine that I wrote for went out of business. And I found that I didn't have a place to represent my work. And so the easiest solution to that was start a blog and start publishing what I wrote up there. And the next thing you know, I had a couple thousand followers and it became sort of a serious thing, which it is now. At this point, I'm probably getting, I don't know, actually somewhere between five and 10,000 reads a week. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's taken over. It's, it's, a, it's a big portion of the time that I spend right now. Awesome. And you do podcasting. How'd you get into that? Yeah, I, I got into that just on a lark. It just struck me as sort of a natural extension of the writing. And it's just something I wanted to try. And so I started doing it. And I, I started in a really rudimentary way by basically using somebody else's equipment and then spent a few bucks on my own equipment and then found it was really worthwhile. And so now I've bought all the equipment that I need to to put them together. And and in fact, I'm working on now one of the ones that I hope to do maybe in the next six or eight weeks or so. I'm hoping to do video as well as audio. Awesome. Sounds great. So from all the content that you've created over the years, what are some of the articles or pieces that stand out? Like when you just kind of think back and reflect, what sort of articles comes out? What sort of themes did it have? Most of what I write is very straightforward and direct, right? So it's information that would help a paint dealer run their business. That's, those are sort of the ones that that's my 85% of my, of my writing is sort of that type of column or blog. And I enjoy writing those, but the ones that really stick out is every now and again, I can write something that's more industry commentary. Mm-hmm. When I can step out of my stores and say, you know what, 
I know a lot of paint dealers. This is what they're saying. This is what they're seeing. These are the challenges we're facing that are being unanswered. This is what we need from our manufacturers. When I become sort of a voice for them, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that writing very Mm -hmm. much, very much. Nice. Okay. Well, with your area, you're producing content. I mean, what are the, some of the books or resources that we should be aware of or even books that you love? Yeah, actually in the industry, I, I'm not aware of any of them anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do any, any reading of any books. I'm not aware of anything that's out there. So you're probably just going to have to just cut that question out. I'm, I don't know of anything. There's <laughs> not even a lot of people providing content. In fact, I'm just starting now. And I know that you guys are doing some as well. And there's a few others, but there's not even a lot of people providing content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know know what you're talking about. (laughs) There's a big void. Yeah, there's really nothing out there. If I wanted to run a paint business, I wouldn't know where to turn other than the experience of somebody else who's already doing it. I wouldn't know where to send somebody. Yeah. So with all the stuff that you're doing here, it's obviously just fun for you, but where do you see it going? Where where do you sort of... What do you want ultimately out of it? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, obviously, the goal is to monetize it and turn it into a business. And, and I'm in the process of doing that now. I, I haven't... I've only been at it for a few months. And so my initial goals were just get the readership count up so that I can say a number that, that people will recognize that, okay, this is real and that Mark is reaching the people that we want to reach. And then once I do that, and I think I'm, I'm almost there now, once I do that, then I'm going to try to figure out how to monetize it through sponsorships or maybe specific pieces for different companies. I've been approached by that as, for that idea as well. So I'm not really sure how that plays out yet, but the next six months will definitely determine that. But at some point, my intention is to turn that blog and podcasting, that content providing life that I'm leading now, at some point, the plan is to turn that into a business, of course. That's awesome. We'll leave your links and sort of information in the, the comment section so they can definitely uh, see and follow your follow your journey. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? You know what? That is absolutely my favorite question of all time. <laughs> and I almost always I almost <laughs> always yeah, I almost always use that question. No, I think you did a really good job. I think you did a really good job, Ted. I don't, I don't have anything that I feel like I need to add to tell the story of, of what I'm doing. Okay. Well, I thank think, you. So. I really think you got to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. And yeah, definitely. I learned a lot and it's uh, definitely uh, will be fun. I appreciate that. So I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify. And I also want to thank the listeners specifically that are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward it along and send me a note or drop me a comment if you have any feedback or suggestions. Talk to you soon.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.